You're listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. This week we're beginning a new study of the characteristics of a committed disciple. We're calling Transformed Through Trust. With this week's message, here's Senior Pastor Lance Bourgeois. So I'll introduce you into a little game that Ellen and I play sometimes, and as I share this, I tell you, you better be really careful when you play it. It's the game where when you see a child do something and you look at the, part, the other parent and say, they get that from you. Now, if it's something really positive and I say, hey, Ellen, they get that positive thing from you. I mean, you run crazy with that one. People will love you for that one. It's when it gets a little bit uh, trickier when it maybe isn't something that you would necessarily affirm, and you say, hey, Ellen, they get that from you. So I will tell you, we've been guilty of that uh, across our marriage. I will tell you a story about one time it played out in my life, and I will tell you, as always, that I have learned over the years that before I share any story of my family as an illustration, I get permission. That's just wisdom. So we had this one day, if you've ever thought that pastor's homes are all about singing hymns and angels at all times, that simply isn't true. So I've been a parent to two adolescents. Uh, And so one of them, my daughter, whom I love dearly, gave me permission to share this story. She's in middle school, and we have this ongoing issue that has come up any number of times. And so uh, I was meeting somebody for breakfast. I came home. Uh, I'm presented with this situation again, and I start having a conversation with her. And that conversation gets louder and louder and louder. And in the course of this conversation, I have hit the end of my rope in this conversation. I was there. I'm upset. My daughter clearly is upset. And so I'm like, we're not talking about it anymore. This conversation's over. Stop talking. And she continued to talk. I mean, come on. So she continues. I say again, hey, stop talking. She continues to talk. And I say, hey, this isn't a hard instruction to follow. There's no confusion here. I don't want to hear another word out of your mouth. Stop talking. She continues to talk. Go to your room. Just so I don't have to hear you anymore in this. Off she goes. She slams the door. I'm sitting there, I'm madder than a hornet, Anna Catherine's madder than a hornet. Ellen is devastated that her husband and her daughter are battling like this. And as I'm sitting there in my chair with my arms folded, I'm livid. And, uh, and all of a sudden, off to the side, about 10 feet away, is a computer armoire that has a printer in it. And I hear that printer crank up. And I looked at Ellen, I'm like, are you printing something? And she's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, listen, are you printing something? She goes, I'm not printing anything. I'm like, I'm not printing anything. You're not printing anything. And yet the printer is printing. So I get up, I walk over, I open the cabinet and there's the printer and i pull that thing off. And my daughter found the loophole. I said, I didn't want to hear her anymore. She has continued the fight growth opportunity in typing a text on the iPad notes and wirelessly sending it to my printer. And the conflict has continued. And you know, in all of my anger, 
You know what my wife says? She gets that from you. <laughs> now, I got to tell you, I don't doubt that at all. Turns out I, too, look for loopholes. I don't like to lose. I will continue to aggressively pursue my agenda, whatever that looks like. Is that how we're supposed to look? Because I think if we've ever been in that kind of position, when we see somebody that mimics us, not to mock us, but we have modeled something for them that we don't like about ourselves, and we see it played out in them, we recognize that is a dangerous, sad position to be in. And as we start a new series today, I want us to begin with this verse. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago. This was a Sunday before Palm Sunday. We were doing this series of Psalms of Ascent. We didn't cover all the Psalms of Ascent, but we did a number of them. And the last in that series that we did was Psalm 125. And that Psalm begins with this, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. So it was against that backdrop that we started talking about, what does that look like? Well, Mount Zion points to Jerusalem. It is a geographical point on a map, but it also is metaphorical. It's what it represents. It represents where God's home is, his house is, his temple is. It represents where his people are. It's where he will dwell with his people eternally. All those things are true. And so when we come to this and we say, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, then it can't be it can't be literal because you could have an earthquake, you could have the mountain move. But metaphorically, is there anything that can stop God's agenda, his plan, who he is? No, there's nothing that can stop him. And so the words of this, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which can never be moved, but will abide forever. Just like God is, just like he will with his people. And yet part of the takeaway that morning, and I'm still reflecting on, and maybe you are as well, is, is it possible for someone to trust in the Lord at such a level, with such a passion, that no matter what moral decay we see around us, that we can still stand up strong and stable in the midst of everything going around us that is? It's a dangerous place. Is it possible? Because if so, who among us wouldn't say, give me that kind of trust? Because I feel like on a daily basis, I can turn on the news and I feel like our world has lost its ever-loving mind. And I don't know what's going on. Lord, how much longer? And yet the quest for me is, what does it look like to trust in the Lord so that no matter what's going on around me, that I can keep my feet underneath me, that I can cling to him and trust in him in such a way that I cannot be moved in the midst of it. Well, that's where we're beginning our series, this idea of what kind of faith does that take. So we're calling this series Transformed Through Trust, is that if we're going to have that kind of faith with that kind of trust that will allow us to withstand whatever comes our way and hold close to the Lord, then what would be characteristics that would be attached to that? What kind of manifestation? What would be going on in my life and in your life that would allow us to have that kind of reality of faith? And that's where we're going to spend. Today, we're going to do an introduction, and then we're going to have seven other lessons that will come along this same line within this series. So I'd invite you to turn with me into your copy of Scripture of Matthew 28, whether or not it's a physical copy uh, like this, or you're using uh, your phone or whatever. I invite you to turn to Matthew 28. This morning, we're going to go through a couple of different Gospels uh, 
So we'll be turning back and forth between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John some, uh, but we will have other passages that will be up on the screens behind us. Matthew 28 is a verse or a passage uh, that is really a significant passage. When we look at this, we're going to talk about discipleship, and you're going to hear this throughout our series, that it is a pathway. It's not about reaching perfection. I don't I don't think we will reach perfection this side of glory, but we can grow spiritually in the midst of it. And so as we do, if I were to ask you to think about discipleship like the alphabet of A through Z, is part of that is if you're at A, we would love to walk with you to B, maybe C, maybe D. But as long as you're here with us, we recognize you're not ours, you're the Lord's, and whatever he's doing in your life, uh, while you're here, we want to walk with you to help you grow in your relationship with the Lord. If you're at L, let's get you to M N. M-N. If you're an S, let's get you to T. That's what we're after. So when we come to these passages today, I want you to hear me say, we recognize that this is not about performance. This isn't about not struggling. This is about moving closer in our relationship with the Lord that over time, we can see that he's at work in us and that we're committed to his purposes. So it's against that that I invite you to look with me at Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Now, recognizing that what we're about to read is after Jesus has already done all of his his teaching, he's lived his life, he's gone through the trials, he's been beaten, he's been to the cross, he's been buried, he's now resurrected, okay? So you have all of those moments have already happened when this is taking place. Jesus gathers the 11 up on the mountain where Jesus had sent them. And when they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. Now, that phrase always grabs me. I get why we would worship, right? You just saw somebody that died, not because of their own sin, but because of our sin. We watched the abuse that he endured. We watched him go to the cross. You watched him come off the cross. You watched him in the tomb. You've seen an empty tomb, and you now see him alive. It's not hard for me to imagine why you would worship. The next word makes them so human, but some doubted. Now, let me tell you, I've seen the Lord do some incredible things across my life. I'm sure you have too. And if you ever thought, why do I still doubt? Recognize these 11 saw all the things I just said, and they're still doubting. I don't know. I mean, sure, he resurrected, but you know, I don't know. Imagine the humanity that's there in this moment. So Jesus keeps going and said to them, verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, they may be familiar with kings, right? That you could have all the authority on this earth or in this kingdom that you could have. Jesus goes way beyond that. Every bit of authority that is in heaven and earth. In other words, in all of the universe, in all of the cosmos, every bit of authority is mine. Now, is it fair for him to say it? Well, if you walked out of the grave, I think you can say it. And he says it. And he says this with, he not only claims the authority, but he gives us instructions based on that authority. Verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Now, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Most every English translation uses that phraseology. And because that's the way that it reads, it would be really easy to think that the imperative verb there for us is go. 
I will tell you that I was raised on that. I was taught that. I heard it from teacher after teacher after teacher. Go. And what that created in me was an unsettledness, like, where do I go? Like, it doesn't matter. You just go. You just got to go. I'm like, but where should I go? Doesn't matter. You just got to go. Which then means what? You can't stay here. You got to go. Now, I got to tell you, I'm going to offer you what I think is encouragement. It certainly was encouraging to me. That word go, the Bible, the New Testament was originally written in a different language, and it gets translated. And that translation for go isn't a great translation. That word is actually a verb, but it's a participle in this passage, right, in that, in that part of the sentence. And because that's true, if we translate it appropriately, that word doesn't mean go, it means as you are going. As you are going. And then guess what our imperative verb is? Make disciples. As you're going, make disciples. That's the imperative verb that's there for you and me. And recognizing the Lord who has all authority in heaven and on earth is the one telling us, as you're going, make disciples. Why does that matter? Well, for one, what it does is it validates where you are right now in this moment. Because the call isn't for you to leave A and go find another place. The calling that as you go through your life, under your roof, when you go to your workplace, when you go to the coffee shop, when you go to a, a restaurant, when you go to school, when you're in the locker room, when you're in the classroom, it doesn't matter. As you're going about your life, make disciples. Wherever you are, you don't have to leave. You stay right where you are. God has put you in a time and in a place. He's given you a sphere of influence. And whatever that sphere of influence is, You're not to abandon that sphere of influence. You make the most of that sphere of influence and you make disciples there. See, that's real freeing. It's not about leaving this place. It's about what I'm doing while I'm here. And then all of a sudden, he gives us some other words that are gonna help us understand what that discipleship looks like. So all of a sudden he says, okay, make disciples of all nations. Well, you just said we don't have to leave. We don't have to leave. Know this, God is not limited to you to accomplish his purposes. Be freed up. Just be faithful in your sphere. And if everybody who walks with the Lord would be faithful in their sphere, guess what? We will make disciples of all the nations. But then he tells us two ways we're going to make disciples. You catch those other two verbs? Baptizing them and teaching them. Baptizing and teaching. See, baptism points to conversion. Is that somehow, as you and I are going through wherever your sphere is, is that you are involved in people coming to know the Lord, and that points to baptism, a profession of faith, a public profession of faith, and that when they start that moment and they walk with the Lord, then you start teaching them that, that we would what? Obey all that, or observe all that He has commanded of us. So we're going to baptize, so people are coming to faith in the midst of this, And then we're teaching them when they come to faith. And we're doing that across our daily lives. And you can say, well, I'm not prepared for that. I don't have the capacity to do that. I think the Lord would say, you're right, you don't, but you're not doing it alone. Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. You and I lack the capacity to do that. That's okay. It's not all on our shoulders. It's a spiritual task. If it's a spiritual task, then we have to have the Lord. And a lot of us may be trying to do this without the Lord. It's not going to work. The Lord says, hey, know this. I'm with you every step of the way. So make disciples. 
Make disciples. As you're going to the coffee shops, the restaurants, the school, your workplace, your family, the dinner table, when holidays come up, Memorial Day weekend, make disciples everywhere we go. Well, what if they already know the Lord? Well, if they're at L, help them get to M. And if they're at S, help them get to T. And what if they don't know the Lord? Then we're at A. And let's see how we can walk alongside somebody to maybe help them see B. So this word disciple that's there, since that's the the verb that we need to know how to do, make disciples, I think that there is a way that that's a big word that points to a lot of different ways that we may think about it. And I think most of us think about it in a pretty significant way as far as spiritual maturity. But let's begin with this. This is out of a Greek lexicon for what the word is. Because there's only one word in the Greek language that is translated disciple. And that word disciple appears in a variety of contexts in our New Testament. We're going to look at several of those today. Each and every time that word disciple is the word methetos, okay? When you go to the lexicon, look at the first definition that they provide for us. It's one who engages in learning through instruction from another. It's a pupil, a student, an apprentice. It's not the teacher, okay? So the first level when we think disciple is it's a person who's trying to learn something. If you wanted to go study another world religion, according to the biblical definition of disciple, you could be a disciple not because you've placed your faith in it, but because you're asking questions about it. Help me understand more about what this says. It's simply a person who's trying to learn something, but is not a teacher, okay? Now, the second definition is the one that we probably think of, one who's rather constantly associated with someone who has a certain uh, pedagogical, a teaching reputation with a particular set of views, somebody who adheres to something. This is the way that we typically think of the word disciple. If you were to say, oh, that, that person is a, is a solid disciple, is that I think we see that as somebody who would maybe be mature in their faith. Or if you said, well, you know, so-and-so discipled me, is we talk about that as a spiritual journey. But yet the New Testament doesn't always use it that way. Help me understand. Help me learn something. Teach me something. So let's go back to the idea of the Great Commission. Because when we come to the Great Commission, when I said, you recognize, make disciples, baptizing them. Because our view of disciple, if we only think of it as a person who is spiritually mature, then we're like, baptizing, that's weird. Well, no. What does it look like to start making disciples with somebody who doesn't know the Lord yet? that you and I live our lives before them in such a way that it is winsome and we're grounded and we're stable and they can look at us and say, hey, I can't help but notice there's something different about you. Every time I see the news and I see another catastrophe happen on the news, I am devastated and you seem to pray about it, you still seem to have a joy and you seem secure. Help me understand. And guess what? We start making disciples at that point and they haven't even come to faith yet. And then we see them get baptized when they come to faith. And then we start teaching them to observe all that the Lord commanded. Because here's the first time we see the word disciple used where it is a curious person, somebody who wants to learn, not somebody who's come to faith. If you've got a copy of Scripture, turn with me to John chapter 6, because I think that we're going to see that this really plays itself out very clearly in John 6. The curious disciple that's just checking out the claims of Christ, not a person who's come to faith yet. 
John chapter 6, uh, verse, starting verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that, this, that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to him, do you take offense at this? Now, think with me. These people are knowing Jesus is coming around. Crowds are falling. Things are starting to happen. There's a lot of energy about him. Healing taking place. He's teaching with authority. He's got all this impact. And people are just like, who is this Jesus guy? I've got to go hear from him. And so they start showing up. And as they show up, Jesus is saying many hard things. By the way, let's not throw stones. You and I've heard Jesus say hard things. Turn the other cheek, right? So when we start hearing this, they're looking around and they're saying, well, this is a hard thing. And Jesus knows what they're thinking. And Jesus says, really, is this too much? Does this offend you? Now, drop down with me, if you would, and look at verse 66. After this, many of his disciples, it's the word methetos, it's the only word we have for disciple. After this, many of his disciples turned back and walked with him no longer. See, the first level of that disciple is somebody that can say, I'm just here to learn. I'm just here to learn. I've heard about this Jesus. I know a little bit about him. I'd like to know more. I need more information. He's different. I know that he's teaching things differently, but I just need to know more. And so they're just checking out the claims. And they may get to a point where they say, you know what? I'm done. I'm done. This is too hard. Turn the other cheek. I'm not going to turn the other cheek. That's ridiculous. That's weakness. And Jesus says, really, does that offend you? And you may turn and walk away. I recognize that there's people watching online today. I recognize that we have people in this room. We've got people on our campus that are here because they're asking a question. Who is Jesus? Can he make a difference in my life? And if that's you, we are thrilled that you are here today. We are glad that you are here to look into who this person of Christ is. But we recognize that we can move from the curious, which is far and away the biggest group of people in the world, but then we get a little bit narrower. And these are the people that become convinced. These are the people who would look at him and say, okay, I've been listening to Jesus. I believe I know who he is. I believe I understand that the claims he's making are true. I think he's who he says he is. Is that going to be the moment of faith? It could be the moment of the faith. If you were to think maybe about your own journey with the Lord, is you may have a period of time where you said, okay, he's who he says he is, but is this what I want? Is this what I want right now? Am I ready to turn my life over and start walking with him? And so somewhere in here, when we come to John chapter 2, we see an evidence of something that happened. Now, when you turn back to John chapter 2 here, this is the wedding at Cana. It's a pretty outstanding thing, and Jesus actually does a double miracle here. John chapter 2, verse 1, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, Mary. Mary was there. So Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. There's our same word. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, that's always interesting because that wouldn't necessarily be a reflection on Jesus at all. He's a guest at the wedding. If anything, that would bring shame on the host of the wedding. And so Mary's there, and she looks, and she clearly expects Jesus to do something. But they run out of wine, and she looks and says, hey, Jesus, there's no more wine. And so Jesus has this moment where is he going to respond or not? 
Look at verse 6. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine and did not know where to come from, even though the servants knew, the servants were the only one that were aware, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you've kept the good wine till now. So let me just tell you, apparently Jesus makes really good wine. Now, there's a double miracle here, right? Because wine doesn't come from water, wine comes from grapes. And so we have two things happen. One is we have the chemical compound from water changed to grape juice. And then simultaneously, he's over time. And the second miracle is immediately that grape juice becomes wine. So we've got a double miracle over both of those things, over chemical elements and over time. And the idea that happens here is usually you serve the good wine first. And then when people had enough good wine, they can't notice that you moved to bad wine. But it was so significant that they were serving I guess mediocre wine, and then all of a sudden the good wine showed up. The disciples have an awareness of what's going on. The servants certainly do. But look down at verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did in Canaan, Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. See, we've moved from curious to convinced. This is unique. He's who he says he is. Nobody can do this. He did it. So what he's saying about himself must be true. And you can have a convinced disciple in any certain categories, like there could be secret ones, right? And maybe this has been you. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for the fear of the Jews. Fear. What's it going to cost me if I step out? What's it going to cost me if I identify myself with Christ? Will my family receive me? Will my parents accept me? Will my siblings accept me? Will I lose my job? Do I need to change jobs? What's this going to do to my financial situation? Do I need to live in fear for my physical safety? This is intimidating. I don't know what to do. Can you still be a convinced disciple? I think Joseph of Arimathea says, yes, you can. He was a disciple of Christ, but he hadn't made his faith public yet. So he's a secret disciple. That's a convinced person. You could live in sin still. This is from 1 Corinthians. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you're not ready. You're not growing. So you still look like you did before you came to faith. You're convinced you've come to faith but it's not really visible. You're not making strides and growing in your relationship with the Lord. You're just there. And he uses milk in a derogatory term there. I fed you with milk for you're not, you weren't ready for solid food. That's what I wanted to give you. But here you are. We should be past this. We're not past this yet. So I'm going to keep giving you milk. Now you want to see a little conviction? Guess what the, why they're still on milk? Because even now you're not ready for the solid food for you're still the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only the human way? You guys haven't even figured out how not to be jealous of one another. I want to give you more spiritual truth, but you guys are stuck back here on the milk phase of life saying that you are still struggling with strife? Trust me, walk with me. There's more to the spiritual life, but we're stuck. We've hit a stopping point. And of course, we could be a healthy disciple, 
Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul right after Saul had come to faith. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught great many people. And in Antioch, that was the first place people were called Christians because they spent a year leaning into this to say, what do I need to know? If Saul, who becomes the apostle Paul, he's convinced, but he's got a lot of growth to do. He's come out of a different system where he was persecuting the church. And by the way, Peter uses the same illustration of milk, but he uses it in a positive way. So put away the malice and all the deceit and the hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And here's the positive. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that you may grow up. One person says, you know what? You should have been on solid food, but you're on milk because you're not growing. But what he tells us is, you know what? We never outgrow and become dull and bored with this to the point that we don't take to this book like a baby takes to milk. That's a healthy disciple. And when we start seeing it that way, we recognize that God wants to grow us, that we were created to move more. If we're going to make disciples as we're going, we're going to have to engage the truth of this book. We're going to have to, baptizing and teaching. Because when we come through this, what we recognize is you can be curious and you can be convinced And all of a sudden, when you become convinced, do you move to the committed? This is where I am. I'm banking my life on this. This is what's driving me from this point forward. This isn't God, this isn't me being the captain of my ship. This isn't about God saying, will you be my co-pilot? God isn't asking for co-pilots. He's asking us to trust him and to let him lead our lives. Look at how he says it. This is from Matthew 16. Then Jesus told his disciples, it's our same word. If anyone would come after me, if you're going to follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What would it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What shall a man or woman give in return for his or her soul? And if God says it once or records it once in the Bible, we ought to perk up our ears and pay attention. If God repeats himself, We really should. How about Mark? And calling the crowd, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to him, sound familiar? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. How about Luke? And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. You hear the thread? I go from curious, he's who he says he is. If he's who he says he is, and I believe it, And what he says, if you're going to be my disciple, then here's the deal moving forward, is you relinquish the control of your life and follow me. You're going to deny yourself. I'm not the captain of my ship. I will take up my cross daily, which is an allegiance to an authority. For Paul, it was the Roman government. Take up your cross. This is a sign that I'm under subjection to a leader. Take up my cross. And so who's the authority? The Lord. Follow me. Follow me. I'm going to follow you. And all of a sudden, we start seeing, okay, so that's how we're going to do it. Because when that happens, here's our fourth level of discipleship. It's when we become commissioned as part of what the Lord wants to do in this world. Do you see the journey? That's the journey. We didn't get there overnight, but we get there in time. The more we engage the Lord and who he is and what he's done, the more that we deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. In this Luke 10 passage that we're going to look at, 
I will grant you that the word disciple does not appear in these verses. It's in the immediate preceding paragraph, but for brevity's sake, we're jumping to what he's calling those disciples to. It's the same word in the previous paragraph. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to him, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. There's not enough. So the invitation, if you're going to deny yourself, you're going to take up your cross and follow me, then join me. If you're following me, then join me because this is where I'm headed. There is a whole lost world out there that doesn't know Jesus. That's where I'm going. I'm going to go tell them about me. I'm going to go tell them that I love them and that their sins have been forgiven. I paid the price on the cross for them because I want them to spend eternity with me. We've been separated by sin and rebellion, and I'm here to fix that. And that's my mission. And if you're going to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, then join me and let's get busy doing it. Do I have to go to another place? No. As you're going, make disciples in whatever sphere that is. Because when all of this comes about, we can look up and say, okay, we need a greater harvest. There's more to do. There's more to do. How are we going to do it? Turn with me, if you would, to Mark chapter 3. I love this passage. I think it has a lot to offer us if we'll think about it. Mark chapter 3. So how do we do it? Where does it begin? How do I stay on the path? If this is the path that I'm supposed to be on, how am I going to do it? Mark chapter 3, verse 13. And he, Jesus, went up on the mountain, and he called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles. Apostle is translated from one who sins. So he appointed 12, the one he also was sending, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. Don't miss the priority. Be with him and then send them out to preach. The liability of somebody going out to preach when they have not been with him is great. And our world is full of people that are out there preaching a message when they have not spent time with him first so they don't know him. You don't understand grace until you've been with him. You don't understand humility until you've been to him. You can't understand God's incredible love that when we fall down and fail, that he would pick us up, dust us off, pat us on the back, and then say, let's start running again. We've got to live that before we go preach him to anybody or we'll miss it. With my daughter, she carried some of my sinful behaviors and she's learned those things from me. When we spend time with Jesus, he's got no sin nature. He's completely holy and righteous. There's nothing negative that rubs off from him onto us, but we can't carry him to a world if we've not been with him. See, now all of a sudden, we've got our marching orders. As you're going, make disciples. That's true. But be with me first, and then let me send you out, commissioned for my purposes. But you've got to know me before you can do it, because the reality is what? The more we get to know him, then all of a sudden what? 
Our perspective changes, our worldview changes, our vocabulary changes, our our missions changes, how we see the world, how we could love somebody. When he says, turn the other cheek, and you've spent time with him, you know that he turned the other cheek. You know that he, like a lamb led to the slaughter, stayed quiet on the way to the cross. But you've got to know him before you can know to offer that side of him to people. The world's desperate to see him. And the question for you and I is, have we spent time with him that we may actually know him? Use this graphic before. If you look at this and that new heart that happens when we come to faith, and so we've been curious, convinced, we've come to faith, now we're committed, and if we see ourselves as commissioned, and that new heart begins to to impact us at such a level that it changes our vocabulary and the way that we think and our perspective and our worldview, you realize that when we learn how to deny ourselves and we take up our cross to follow him, is that the impact in our world, family, church, work, and government The impact is the Lord because we've been commissioned by him and we've spent time with him and he has the capacity to make impact on the world. Question for you and me is if we don't learn how to take up our cross and follow him, then all we can offer this world is ourselves. And then we're gonna end up with stuff like I offer my daughter, like find the loophole so that you can text in your response to the conflict. See, we were created for more than this. And so problem is, Do we look like what God's calling us to look like? Him. So I'd ask you to consider, where are you in that? And you, I mean, I'm not going to ask you to tell your neighbor, but I'd encourage you to lean into the Lord and say, Lord, where am I in this? Where do I need to grow? And if I were going to grow, how could I grow? What would that look like if I were to grow? I've been in the curious stage for a long time. It's time for me to figure out how to move forward in this. I've been convinced for some time. Maybe it's time to move to committed. And our commitment to you is wherever you are, we want to walk with you there and help you see how you could move forward in the progress. It's not perfection. Matter of fact, if we're real honest, a lot of times it may be three steps forward and one step back. And if we're really, really honest, it might be three steps backwards and then 13 more steps backwards for one step forward. That's Christian life. And we're in it. And every time he picks us up, he dusts us off and he gets us back in the game. But if we go preach him and we haven't experienced that, then we would never know to tell somebody that. We're going to give them behavior modification. And that's not what this is about at all. What might that look like? Well, it might look like this. One seminary professor wrote about this. This is one female's journey. This isn't prescriptive. But I want you to listen and see if you can hear the progression in her discipleship. When he writes this, a student came to my office the other day to chat. She began by saying she had grown up in the church. She had done all the right things. She'd made all the right decisions. She'd gone to all the right conferences. She said she was embracing a Christian faith that had been natural and painless for her. Curious, convinced? She's saying she's a believer, so maybe convinced. But her faith wasn't vibrant or all-consuming until she went to Central America, and then she saw the needs of this world, and she realized that Jesus' kingdom vision was bigger than her own personal happiness. Here's somebody picking up their cross to follow him. It's starting to seep in, isn't it? She returned to the U.S. She began to cut back deeply on her spending. She was more committed to prayer and Bible reading and serving others and then plotting out a life of service. More importantly, she said she realized more and more that the cross meant what the cross meant and how she had become selfish and materialistic in her life. The young woman recommitted her life to Christ and to to serving him, recently breaking up with her boyfriend because, as she put it, quote, he just doesn't get it and he doesn't want to give his life for others as Christ calls us to. That's one woman's journey, curious, 
Convinced, committed, commissioned. Whatever the Lord's entrusted to me, I'm using it for his purposes. That's not what a curious person would say. It's not even what a convinced person would say. It's somebody that takes seriously the commissioning that the Lord says the, the harvest is plentiful, but we don't have enough laborers. What part can you play? And that question goes out to us today. Because when Jesus said this, we've got to at, wrestle with the truth, truthfulness of it. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. If you're here and you're saying, I've been trying to find my own life, is that's not the path that you were created for. It's not the path you even want to be on. The path you want to be on is the one that moves you from curious to convinced to committed to commissioned to say, Lord, I'm joining you in this work. You alone are God, and I'm all in on you. You're the one that, walked, that paid my debt. You died on a cross, and you walked out of the grave for my sake, and you offered me life, and then you invite me to join you in this work, to tell other people, not out of arrogance, it's not arrogant, it's more along the lines of, we found, the, we found the, the soup kitchen, and we have the privilege of walking through this life saying, hey, look, I can't help but tell, you're, you're hungry for some soup. There's a soup kitchen right there at the cross. I'd love to walk with you there, if you would like to go here. And then we get a chance to offer people that. If you're here this morning and you have experienced the separation from God and you've been living in that convinced thing, we are so glad you're here. We are so glad you're here. Grab anybody with a lanyard. We'd love to talk with you about it. But know this, Jesus came to earth because we were separated from him. And we're told that that separation was caused by sin. And the penalty for that sin is death, which is what Jesus paid on the cross because he was righteous. He didn't have a wage to pay, but he paid my wage and your wage. And he conquered death and offers us life. If you're here this morning and you don't know that, get to know him. Ask us questions. Let us help you on this journey. That's what we want to do. And you can step into that by saying, Lord, I believe that when you did that, you did that for me. And all of a sudden, you take that step from curious to convinced, and we start on that path to becoming committed. What a joy. You've been listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible-teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. You can join us for worship Sunday mornings at our campus on Stone Lake Drive in Wichita Falls. Stream services live online at gracechurch.com or subscribe to our podcast published on Apple, Google, and Spotify. From all of us at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.